Hey, how are you guys? You all right? I'm good. Good Good to see you guys. I'm excited uh, of what we're going to get into today. I want to talk about what our culture tells men uh, about what it means to be a man. And I think one way you can look at that of like how do we define manhood is if you look at the cover of men's magazines, at least the covers that I can show in this room. Uh, like I, I went with James Corden on the cover. I thought that was safe. Uh, I, didn't think, I, I didn't think that was going to be too much of a problem. But, you know, men's magazines have these articles about like, this one's about the cool, you know, how important it is to be cool past high school. Uh, 143 pages of style. And then, and then uh, almost all the men's health, fitness, all these things are, are, have something to do with abs or arms. So manhood equals abs and arms. Uh, are you ninja fit? Uh, here's how you stay lean. Uh, and then they will have something about sex. And then there will be something about like cool gear and gadgets and then there will often be something about like what kind of car you drive and how cool that can be. Um, and, and you read those things and you start to conclude like, um, look here, like 10x your life. Like if, you, if your life, guys, if your life is 1x, you're like 9x short of what you could be, right? There's like nine more x that we could do with your, your life. I mean, and then there's another one about sex and about arms and abs. Like it's, it's all the same. I looked at these, I looked at magazines like this for, for this message. I looked at ones that were in Italian and I had to look up what's the Italian word for abs because it's also on the cover, you know, like it's the same thing. Um, over and over, this is the message sent to men that your life is, you know, um, sex, women, gadgets, uh, cars, um, abs, uh, arms. That's that's about it, and then all of that like to 10x, you know, and then like maybe throw in something about investment and not a lot of articles about your feelings and things like that. It's just this is the stuff it's about, and it communicates to men, young men, all men. I think it communicates, hey, this is what it's, what it's about to be a man, and that's a little bit intimidating for all of us who don't have like a six-pack of abs, right? Like that's a little bit intimidating if that's what manhood is a lot of us are going to be in trouble. Like, I, 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 don't know if I, can, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I want to spend the energy that it takes to get six-pack abs. If it's about your car, I, draw, I drive a Toyota Sienna, and that's never on the cover of one of these magazines. They're never like, you're your best Sienna now. It's like, ugh. Like, so so uh, what I realized as I was looking at these things that it's telling man, men they should be is that all of those things require a trade-off. You have to give up something in order to get those things. If you want the best abs of your life, you're going to have to like eat all broccoli all the time. You're going to have to not ever drink alcohol or you're going to have like there's just things you're going to have to do to live a certain lifestyle that gets you that thing. You have to give up something because you want this other thing. It's all trade-offs and and all of uh, what society tells you to do is trade trade what you have for something else. So trade um, money for power or trade, uh, you know, trade your time for this relationship or spend this amount of time in the gym or whatever. And it, it all ends up becoming trade-offs because the reality is for all of us, there are three things we all have, time, money, and energy. And I'll say time, money, and relationships, let's say. Um, and, and we all have limited quantities of those things. Like take money, for example. I don't know how much money you make. Some people in this room make a lot. Some people make a little. But no matter how much you make, you make a limited amount. There's only so much money that you make. Um, and that has some edges to it. I can't, I can't buy this other thing that I want because uh, I don't have that kind of money and I'm going to need to get on a budget and I'm going to need to save for that. There are limits to this kind of stuff um, that, that happens that, that, we have to, that we have to work under. We only have so much money. Uh, we, only, we only have so much time. The average man in America lives 78.6 years. So if you live to be older than 78 as a man... You're, you're like in the bonus level, uh, which is cool. 
good, good for you. That's awesome. Uh, but a lot of people don't even get 78. That's average, right? Um, I've been at this church. We planted this church 10 years ago. And in the last 10 years, I haven't done a lot of funerals. But the funerals that I have done usually are for people under 50 years old. So I've been reminded again and again that life is short, and sometimes it's tragically short, um, and that we aren't all guaranteed. We'd all like to fall asleep on our, you know, die in our sleep when we're 90 or something, but for the most people, it doesn't work that way. And so we have a limited amount of money, we have a limited amount of time, and we have a limited amount of relationships. I can only invest in so many people, and by investing here in this person, I'm saying I can't invest in this person. I can only know the name and the story of so many people, right? I can't, I can't know everyone. You're the same way. So you start to think in terms of trade-offs. What am I willing to give up in order to get this? How much money do I want to spend? What am I, if, if my company wants me to work this hard, what am I going to sacrifice with my family in order to do that? Or if I'm investing in my family over here, what am I going to sacrifice at work in order to do that? There's all of these trade-offs that we have to, uh, that, that we have to think through. There are trade-offs and there are really what you might call sacrifices. A sacrifice is when you give up something you love for something you love more. And so we have to make those, those kind of calls in life. I'm going to sacrifice this. I'm going to give up this, this time, this money, this energy in order to get this other thing. And the question I want us to explore today as we finish out this manifesto series is this. Men, what are you going to trade your life for? What are you going to trade your life for? Because here's the reality. You're going to trade it for something. It's not a matter of will you pursue things. It's just a matter of which ones will you pursue and will you do that intentionally as in this is the direction I'm going or will you allow culture to just sort of slowly, slowly pull you into a, a, a direction. Um, you're going to give your life to something. It could be to a career. It could be to your family. Um, it could be to some sort of cause. You will trade time, money, and energy for these things. So what are those things? We'll wrap it up this series today on Samson. And Samson's been an interesting character to study um, because he's kind of a train wreck. I, I would say he's a hero of the Old Testament, but he's kind of an anti-hero as well. And, and you, you, you read him and you go like, man, why is this guy in the Bible? Or even like, hey, God chose this guy to do his work. Why would God choose somebody so terrible and such a mess to do his work. Surely there was someone nicer and better around that God could have chosen in order to do his work. Um, but there are some interesting threads that run through Samson's story. He was born for a purpose. In roughly 1200 BC, the Israelites were being oppressed by the Philistines. And God rose and brought Samson along to help stop that, to help the Israelites separate themselves from the Philistines. Now, here's an important thing. The Israelites had already been oppressed by other people groups that were far worse than the Philistines, the Midianites and the Moabites and these, these people. These people had oppressed Israel and they were bad and there was nothing in the Israelites that said, I want to be like the Moabites. They were like, these guys are jerks, we need to get rid of them. What was going on when Samson comes along is that the Israelites were being enticed by the Philistines. The Philistines weren't terrible. We talked about the child sacrifice thing that was terrible a few weeks ago. But outside of that, they weren't as bad as the other cultures that had oppressed them. And the Israelites were looking at the Philistines going, they're not so bad. You know, they're whatever. Their women are beautiful. They, they have money. They have, they have land. They, there's some good things going on over there in Philistine land. We want to go get that. Um, and they were being enticed by that. And that is the danger. Not when people vehemently oppose us, but when people are enough close to us that we kind of like them and want to become like them and then get off the path. 
And so there was a, a real danger for the Israelites that they would stop being followers of God at all. They would start worshiping the gods of the Philistines, and they would start becoming like the Philistines. Uh, pastor and author Tim Keller, who had a, a church in New York City, he says this, our greatest threat isn't when culture opposes us. It's actually when culture entices us. God's people usually do okay overall when attacked, but when they begin to be assimilated into culture and share the values, mores, and idols of the surrounding culture, then, we, then we're really facing our greatest danger. And I think that's a danger for Christians today is that we stand in a country that do, Christians are not persecuted in America like they are in Egypt and, and in other places around the world. We stand in a culture that's off a little bit of, of our faith. You could argue however you want to argue. It's off a lot from our faith or whatever. But we stand in, in a culture there where some things feel close enough that we can be enticed into following the values and the, and the the idols of the culture that we live in. And so we need to be very aware of that. So Samson is raised up by God in that moment to help his people keep their eyes on the prize, to, to focus back on God and not be distracted and enticed by the Philistines. And he, and he raises Samson up for that purpose. Samson has um, got a, a powerful mission and purpose in his life, but he blows it with things that men fall to all the time. He blows it with anger and he blows it with lust. And he ends up falling in with a woman named Delilah because he lusted after her. Her name means temptress. And she tempts him, and he, he's lusting after her, and they're in this relationship. And she discovers the source of his strength, um, and she cuts his hair, which re- removes this uh, strength of the, of the vow that he had from childhood. And um, in absence of his strength, the Philistines grab him and tie him up, and then to pay him back for the things that he had done to them that we read about two weeks ago with his anger, uh, they gouged his eyes out. So, so Samson, this uh, character that you think of as this muscular, like strong, powerful dude, ends up with his eyes gouged out. Um, and, and it's like the whipping boy of the Philistines. They kind of laugh at him, and they make fun of him. And so um, I want to read you one more story, one more episode from his life, and this is kind of the end of his life. And I want you to see how uh, he asked God to make, uh, make him powerful one more time, and he makes a trade-off of his life for God's purpose. We'll start it with Judges 16. We'll start with verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together, gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. I told you before they worshipped Baal. They also worship a god called Dagon, which I want to say Dagon. Um, I, don't know, I don't know the right way to pronounce that. We'll go with Dagon. Uh, and this god that they worshipped, um, we know from sort of ancient sources, was a god that was like half fish, half man. So like the head of a man, the body of a fish, kind of this merman kind of idea. And I read about that and I think, how silly is that? That, that an entire culture would worship this half man, half fish god thing and like how weird is that that anyone would do that they would they would give their money to it they would like worship at that altar and yet that's exactly what they did as weird as that was um i can't relate to it but but uh but but that's what they were doing they were worshiping this god dagon and then in verse uh, 24 listen to what happens and when the people saw him they praised their god for they said our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he might entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. So the ESV translation of the Bible there is being, being nice about the word there. It says, when their hearts were merry. 
I think we know what this is. They were drunk. They were pretty drunk, and they're having a big party, and they're like, our God has been good to us. We got this fool. We, we got him. And um, they, they, were, they were so drunk that even a stupid idea sounded like a good idea to them. Has anybody ever been that drunk? You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. Uh, but it was one of those situations where they're like, hey, I've got an idea. And the other guy's like, what? What should we do? He's like, let's go get Samson out of jail. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that fool. Yeah, let's get him. We're going to celebrate what our God's done. We're going to go get him. What do you want to do? Let's get him out here in front of us. Awesome. Yeah, let's get him out here. And then what? And then he's just going to stand there, and everyone's like, yes, what a great idea. Yes, bring him out. And for no reason to entertain them, to, to be out there, gou- eyes gouged out, just kind of hanging out there. And you, this is like one of those things, like you don't want to underestimate the stupidity of men in large groups, you know, where it just gets worse. And th- then they're, they're, I mean, if they had kept recording, they're probably like, and then let's light it on fire, and it's going to be awesome, you know. So they're kind of doing this, like, this party thing. They're like, we're all drunk. This is cool. Just bring him out here, and we're just going to look at him. So they bring Samson out, and he stands there in, in front of the people. And, and look, what it, look what it says in, in verse 26. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So it's, it's like the most crowded concert, right? 3,000 people. It is a common thing in, in the Middle East today and in that time that you would be on a roof. There would be a rooftop part of the party as well. So everyone's looking down on Samson. He's kind of there in the middle. And it's super packed. Have you ever been to one of those shows where it's so packed you can barely move? I think the most packed in I've been was Christmas Eve of 1993. No, New Year's Eve, 1993 in Toronto. I was at a, a thing, and they did a concert, and they did this stuff. And it was one of those deals where it's like it's cold out, but like... Uh, if you raise your hands to like, I don't know, whatever you do, woo, to like, woo, you know, whatever, like you couldn't put your hands back down, right? Because there's like people have just rolled in there. Good thing you weren't like sweaty or whatever. But like, so I'm, I'm at this thing and this is what I imagine it's like in this situation where people are like jammed in and they're looking at Samson and Samson's like, let me just rest my, my hands on the pillars that are here. And he asked God to use him one last time. Look at verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, oh Lord God, Please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I might be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Okay, this ends up being a hard story, again, in, in, in the Scripture. You're like, whoa, that's, that's intense. Here, here it is, almost celebrating the fact that he's effectively a suicide bomber in the end of his life. He's like, I'm just going to go down, and I'm going to bring a lot of the Philistines um, with me. And, that, of course, you can look at this as God's judgment on the Philistines and say, like, hey, they actually were a pretty, a pretty bad, uh, bad group of people. Um, but I think another way to look at this, and and, and, and I think the reasons recorded for us is, is this. Um, Samson is fulfilling the purpose of his life to start delivering the Israelites from the Philistines. And he's doing it by doing something he has not done very well up until this point. Samson is thinking about a greater purpose and mission um, and not just about his own pleasure and not necessarily just about his own anger. He's like, God, can you use me one last time? 
um, it's kind of a, a, a powerful thing that in, in this moment he gives up his life for something greater than just himself. And there's a couple ideas that I want to pull out of this from this account and from this whole Samson series that I think are really important. And these are for men to keep in mind, but I think these are good for all of us to remember as well. Um, and number one is this. A failure is an event, not a person. A failure is an event, not a person. Man, you read about Samson and you realize this guy left a bloody trail and, and not always in a righteous, like, anger kind of way, but like in his own anger sort of way. And he kind of made a mess of things and he gave into his lusts and he, and he does a lot of horrible things. And you can rightly ask, and someone even asked me this after service a couple weeks ago, like, I just, I just got problems with this because he's such a bad dude. Like, he's just a bad man. And why would God use such a bad man? Can't God find somebody better around and I think that says a lot. Um, we need to ask the question, why would God use somebody like this? But it also says a lot about us. Because when we say that, when we say, God, why would God use such a bad person? What we're also saying is, I'm a better person than that. Like if God had picked me, I wouldn't have blown it the way Samson did. I'm not that terrible. Like I got my issues, I got a couple things, but I'm better than that. And that's where I think we kind of miss the point. Um, the gospel tells us that all of us are worse than we think, but we're more loved than we could even believe. And so the truth is, yeah, Samson's a wreck, but all of us are a wreck on, on some level. And our failure is, is an event. It's something that happens. It's not a defining characteristic of who we are. Because at some point in this series, men, as we've been talking about lust, as we've been talking about anger, as we've been talking about men's calling from God to provide and protect uh, those around us, at some point, you listen to all that, and you listen to stories about lust, and you listen to stories about anger, and you remember your own story, and you go, I've blown it. I've gotten too angry. I've flown off the handle more than once. I've cut some people down. I've cut some people off. I have lusted. I have gone after things that weren't mine to go after. I have done all of those things. As I'm reading through Samson's life, there's a piece of you, men, there's a piece of you that goes, check, check, check. I didn't realize we were reading a checklist of my life of ways that I have blown it, but that is what's happening here. And it feels terrible. And it feels, it feels dark and broken. And you go, ugh, I don't like this. I don't even want to hear the next sermon because it's going to be more of the ways that I have blown it. And you think of your own bio and your own story. And what you start to feel is remorse. I wish I hadn't done these things. I wish I hadn't blown it in this way. And remorse is a good thing. It's okay to feel sorrow for our sins. It's okay to go, I shouldn't have done that. But remorse becomes a problem when it spirals into this feeling of like, not only did I blow it, but I'm just the kind of person who blows it. Not only did I mess up, I'm just the one who makes messes. I am a horrible person. And maybe somebody in your life has told you that from, from childhood all the way up. You have been told, you're a screw-up. You blow it. You're a horrible person. You're, you're a bad fill-in-the-blank, right? Maybe you've heard that. And that's when remorse becomes toxic. I feel bad for what I did. Good. And I'm a terrible person. Bad. Let me give you another option. Instead of just feeling remorse as you process all the things we've talked about in the series, take remorse another step and go to repentance. Say, I'm going to walk a different road. I... I I've blown it, and I'm going to walk a different road and not do that again. I feel remorse for how I treated that woman. Therefore, I am going to, in the future, treat all women better. I feel remorse for what I said to my kid that one time. 
And therefore, going forward, I'm going to repent of that and start using kind words and speaking differently to my children. Remorse um, is maybe, in, in some ways, is, is all we ever get to. And we need to go beyond that to a place of repentance. Samson is a reminder to us that God uses him even at the end of his life. Samson is a reminder that failure, all of your failures, all your ways you've messed up, these things are events. They do not define you. And here's the great news about God. You get a do-over. God's grace extends to you. If you've blown it, that doesn't have to define you. Everything you have been up to 1143 today, this morning, everything that has gone on in your life, all of your combined history, your bio sketch, everything that makes you, you right now, does not have to define who you are from, for the rest of your life. There's stuff back there. There is wreckage in the wake. There is. But it doesn't have to define you. There's a do-over. God can forgive all that you've done and give you his grace. Now, you may need to go clean up some things. You may need to go back to people you've hurt and said, hey, I need to make amends. Will you forgive me? And they may not forgive you. But Romans 12 tells us that we're supposed to live at peace with people as far as it depends on us. And sometimes living at peace with other people does not depend on you. But you need to do your part. So yes, man, go make amends, but accept God's forgiveness and his grace that he has cleaned that stuff up and you give your life to him and he's like, I'm going to wipe it clean and you can be something new going forward no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've blown it. So number one, a failure is an event, not a person. Number two, I think the challenge for Samson, from Samson for us is to pour out your life for something greater. Men, society will ask you to pour out your life for all sorts of things. It'll give you those trade-offs. Pour out your life for work, for this company. Pour out your life, even for some good things, for your, for your family. Pour out your life for money. Um, we live in a consumption economy that says you've got to keep getting the new and the bigger and the better, and it's new shoes, and it's a new car, and it's a new house, and, and all of these things. And the reality is they will always leave us unsatisfied, no matter how much we pour out for them, they're going to come up empty with us. I think we have this sense, no matter how many new things you get, I think we all have this sense, this gnawing in our soul, that we are made for more than this. That this isn't what life is about, it's just to be on the consumer train and to just get stuff. There's something greater, there's a greater purpose that God has built into our hearts that we need to be pursuing. Um, I think this is why men love sports so much because we know there's supposed to be something grand, and sports feels like something bigger than you. It feels like being grand, a grand narrative, a good guys and bad guys, I'm on the good team, they're the evil team. feels that way, doesn't it? Um, maybe there's this, a seduction that comes from working with a big company where it's like we have this massive miss, mission and we're doing this thing, and there's social good that happens in our company a little bit, but you're going to make great money and you're going to do these things, and it feels important to us. It feels like that's the, the mission. Or maybe we get drawn into causes. We're going to save the animals. We're going to save the planet. We're going to um, vote for this guy and support that guy politically or oppose this, this guy or girl for them you know, politically. We get sucked into all these causes, and I'm not even saying they're all bad. There's some good stuff there, but it's never enough. It's, it's never big enough to support us, and that's why um, I believe in the gospel. I believe in this idea of heaven and hell, of life and death, of eternity, of where we are going with our lives, how we were made, why we were made, how we can be in a relationship with God. That is the stuff. That is the big stuff, um, and, and those other things will never satisfy us because they were never meant to.
Samson gave up his life for God. Men, what are you going to trade your life for? What are you going to trade your life for? You know, I'm a big fan of the church. Not just this church, but the church around Richmond, the church around the world. I'm a big fan of what is happening all over the world today and throughout the week. The body of Christ doing its thing. Um, and and I'm, I'm a fan of it because it doesn't exist to make money. It doesn't exist just to build a better organization or anything like that. Um, and, and even as a church where we're at here in Richmond, we don't exist just to make things nicer in Carytown or Richmond. We don't exist just to help the public schools or anything like that. I mean, we're going to do those things. But ultimately, a church is about Jesus and his kingdom. And it's about knowing him, being in relationship with him, allowing him to transform our lives so that we can transform the city, that, we, that he would flow through us out. But it, it is a relationship with God. That's what we're about it's ultimately about Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus said, greater love has none than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus gave up his life for us, our sins, because we have blown it in a big way. We've messed up, and, and in the church, this is the stuff we connect people to. There's stuff in your past, men. There's stuff that you can't undo. You can't unclick on that website that you clicked on. You can't unsleep with that person that you slept with. You can't uncheat the person you cheated, but you can be forgiven. And you can start over. Um, this is what we're about as a church, is helping people meet Jesus who transforms their lives. This is what I know. I can't fix you. There's no amount of clever words I could say from a stage or in a Bible study or anything that fixes what is broken in you. And I can't fix me. You're going to wrestle with some things for years, maybe decades. But I do believe over the long haul God has the power to change you. Jesus has the power to fix you. And that's what we're about as a church. And there's part of me that wishes it was another way. We live in a culture that's like, take a pill and we'll fix it. Just go get cut on and they can cut that out. Or, or you know, here's four weeks to flat abs or whatever it is. We live in a culture that's like instant gratification on demand. And I get why that's so appealing. I don't have that for you. I don't have that for me. All I have is Jesus. And I think it's actually all I need. I, I truly believe you get your life into relationship with him and he can change you and he can fix you. And it's not going to be as quick as a pill, um, but it's actually going to be effective. And, and when I... When I write this stuff, I want to be as persuasive as possible. I want to be as compelling as possible um, when I stand up here with you. But the hardest thing for me is to just wrestle with it three weeks before I ever stand up here and go, okay, what are you, what are you saying, Lord? And what are you saying to me? Because I've got to wrestle with this too. I can't just stand up and talk about it. Um, and what I keep coming back to is Jesus is the hope of the world. Um, he is all we've got. We don't sell anything else here. But he is all we need. So, if you have not been baptized into Christ, let me encourage you to take that step. Give your life to him. Be immersed in water. We have a baptistry set up in our new building at 2810. Just, just the next block over, we have a baptistry set up that we can baptize you. And you can start allowing God to rework 
your life because he can fix you. Um, I truly believe as men, uh, we need to sacrifice. We need to leverage our lives for something greater than ourselves. Um, now, you could say it's easy for you, Chris, to say that you're a preacher. Of course you think the church is going to be helpful and, and there's hope there and you think Jesus is the answer and all that. But that's not just me as a preacher saying that. That's any of us as a follower of Jesus. When you signed up to be a follower of Jesus, this is what you were signing up for, to, to know the one who can change you and to follow him and to be obedient to him. Um, so men, we are called to sacrifice. Are women called to sacrifice also? Yes. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, if anyone comes after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself and take up his cross. That's not written to men. That's written to all of us. If we're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be, there's going to be baked into the thing. Listen, self-denial and sacrifice. That's baked into it. But men are challenged to sacrifice in, in various ways in the scripture. I was looking at husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, maybe the most famous verses for, for marriages. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, he tells wives, here's the thing, men and women in our culture, we act like they're, they're totally the same. They're basically interchangeable. But every time men and women are laid out side by side in scripture, they are told different things for different reasons, probably because of some of the struggles that they have. And wives are told, wives submit to your husbands. Radically unpopular verse in today's culture. We could have a whole sermon on that, and we have had. Not going to do it right now. Wives submit to your husbands, and, and all the women in the room stiffen up, and they're like, what did that just say? And then to husbands, what does Paul say right after that? He says, husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for the church. So Paul goes right to sacrifice to men. So this is what it's going to be like for you to be married and do it well. You're going to lay down your life for your wife. That's a heavy thing that he lays on us. And why, why does God lay that on men in that, in that instance and not on, on women? I asked my wife this. I said, why do you think this happens? And, and she said, because women um, are already used to sacrifice as kind of part of the deal. I'm like, what do you mean? And she goes, childbirth. And I'm like, boom, you're right. <laughs> she said, what is childbirth? It is... It is laying down what is convenient for you for the sake of someone else completely. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's true. And maybe men are challenged to sacrifice because we don't do that in childbirth, right? We stand by and cheer and try to be somewhat useful. Um, but maybe men are challenged, hey, this is an area where you, where, where you are needed. Lay down your life and sacrifice yourself for the good of others. A couple weeks ago, there was a shooting in Southern California that you heard about. It's just a, another in a string of pretty violent, violent things. Um, and in that, in that demonstration of what we would think of as an angry, toxic masculinity, all of that, there were some other things that, were, that happened. Um, a woman named Taylor Whitler, who was there at that club celebrating a friend's birthday, she gave her firsthand account of what happened, and as the shooters started shooting in that club, a bunch of people, she said, dogpiled, so a bunch of people jumped on each other and, and laid down on the ground in a pile so as to not get shot. And listen to what she says, her account of being in that room. So while we were all dogpiled over at the side, there were multiple men that got on their knees and pretty much blocked all of us with their back toward the shooter, ready to take a bullet for any single one of us. 
And just the amount of people that made sure everyone got okay, or if they were out, they made sure they went around to every single person around them and asked them if they were okay, and if they needed a phone to call their family, or just in general, any way they could help. It was awesome. So here's a scene where there's gunfire in a, in a, in a public place, and here's this image of people piled up, and a group of men, she said a bunch of men, got on their knees around the group and put their arms out with their backs to the shooter, willing to take a bullet for everyone that was in the room. And, and while the shooter is an example of the toxicity of masculinity in our culture, I think right there is an example of the good side of masculinity in our culture, that someone was willing to lay down their life. And I was just encouraged to hear that it, this happens in 2018, that this isn't just some sacrifice, isn't just some old word from a dusty old time that we don't believe in anymore, but that men in the heat of that moment were like, it is my job to lay down my life for someone else. And I think that's a powerful thing. And I'd like to think that if I was in that room, I would have done the same thing. I'd like to think all of us are, are, are willing to sacrifice. Man, if someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night and your kids are upstairs sleeping and your wife's laying next to you, if that's, if that's your situation, someone breaks into your house, are you going to do something? I am, and I'm not even good at it. I'll get up in my pajamas with a lamp, and I'm going to go. We're going to go. It'll be like Clue. There's going to be a murder in the, in the, the study with a lamp, with a lampstand, and that's, that's what it's going to be. Um, and, and, and why? I mean, I'd like to think that's who I am, and I, and, and I bet a lot of you would do the same because you would think, man, there's something on the line here that it is my calling to sacrifice for. Um, but it's easy to think I will lay down my life, but will you lay down your preferences not, not just will you die for Christ or will you die for the things you hold dear, will you actually also live for them? I've heard that about the former Soviet Union where there was a lot of persecution on Christians and I've heard people come out of that environment say, hey, we can die for Christ. It's just harder to live for him. We know how to do this. We know how to give up our lives for him. But how do we live for him in the, in the day to day? And so, men... Um, not just will you lay down your life, but will you lay down your preferences? Will you sacrifice for the greater good? Will you sacrifice for the people that are around you? This is our manifesto. We, we called this series manifesto, and I lo- actually looked up that word, and the, the word manifesto means it's a public declaration of policy or aims. And I'm a preacher, right? So I don't have policies, and I'm not making policy. We're not a government organization. But I do have some aims, I do have some aims for me, and maybe, if I could, some aims for the men in this church, Um, for us to be all that God calls us to be as men. Every day, I have an aim that I will step up and take up my cross, and that we will all do the same, that we will say, it is my job. I'm the first one in line to die when the cavalry comes. We sing that song here. It's my prayer that that is true for us as men, that we have the aim to make sacrifices. Every day, it is my aim to say it is not about me, to serve my wife and my my children. Every day, I say the best way to lead in my home is not to make them serve me, but for me to serve them. Every day, it is my aim not to lead at work by being domineering over people and saying, you need to believe me and obey me because I'm the boss, but tr- to try to serve the people that are, that are working with me and that work for me and, and with me. Um, these, are, these are my aims. These are, this is my manifesto. This is my, my hope that we would be the kind of men that lead out um, in sacrifice for the sake of those that are around us. And, and in doing so, we would be the kind of men 
that God was calling Samson to be and that God is calling us to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you for the example of Samson, twisted as he was, broken as he was. Um, and God, I recognize the places in my heart where I want to think I'm better than him, where I, where I want to say, well, I haven't killed a bunch of people and I haven't done all these things, but I know there's sin in my own heart, Lord, and there's ways that I have blown it too. Maybe it's on a different scale, and maybe in some ways I can feel justified by that. But the truth is, it's all sin, and it all separates us and me. Uh, it separates us from each other. It separates us from you. So, God, I thank you for your grace, how you cover that, how your son dies for our sins and makes us right with you and brings us into relationship with you. We celebrate that now in communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.